Well, let's turn to the 22nd Psalm as we'll again be looking at this. I would like to read just the first three verses of Psalm 22. To the chief musician upon Ijelis Shehar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. As we continue our sermons upon Psalm 22, we finally arrive now to verse 23, or verse 3, where we read again, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. I do hope by now, after looking at about eight sermons, or coming up on eight sermons on this, that we're pretty much convinced that this psalm is dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the subject of this psalm is the person of Christ and his sufferings upon the cross for our sins. As you know, the New Testament teaches us that our sins were imputed to him, they were laid out upon him, and he suffered and bled and died on behalf of us. Now, if we do believe the New Testament, obviously, then our only conclusion is that it does speak of him suffering in the stead of his people. Now, in verse 1, we see him crying out to God as he is forsaken by God. In other words, this is the point in time in which his father has forsaken him. His father's wrath and his displeasure is upon him, and thus he is suffering all of this at this time. Now, of course, there is much that we do not know that took place upon the cross because it's just not revealed to us. But what is revealed to us, of course, is necessary that we do believe. And one of the things that is really necessary to believe is, of course, that our sins were laid upon him. Also in verses 1 and including verse 2, we saw that during his forsaking, that God had forsaken him, that uh, he doesn't get his prayers answered. He cries out, as we see here in verse 2 in particular, and he does not hear. And so this as we look to this, we also need to recognize that this whole scene that we're looking at and have been looking at is, was known from all eternity. This wasn't something that was just dreamed up before Jesus went up to the cross. This was something that was in the plan and purpose of God from the very beginning. So in the eternal counsels of God, then they had already decided all of this and what all was going to take place. When God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, were together, if we want to call it that way, this was laid out that Jesus Christ would undergo all of these particular sufferings. So this is no, uh, no fluke. It's no uh, misjudgment of facts and stuff like that concerning what all that took place. This, was, again, was the purpose and plan of God Almighty from the very beginning. You remember Peter saying this on the day of Pentecost, him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So we notice there that it was done by the determinate counsel of God. Also in chapter 4, here we see the, uh, what the scripture tells us there. It says, who by the mouth of... Well, let's start with verse 24. And when they heard that, that is that the 
the apostles had been mistreated again by the, uh, the Jews and the, the leadership. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So again, we see the very plain teaching of Scripture that this was the purpose of God, that all of that we see in Psalm 22 was and did take place. Now, this was something that wasn't just revealed in the New Testament, but it was something that was taught also in the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament Scriptures were full of predictions or prophecies regarding uh, Jesus Christ and his suffering for his people. We see this, for instance, in the Psalm, Psalm 22 here. We see it in Isaiah 53, and there are other course uh, uh, scriptures, of course, in the Old Testament that point these things out. And not only that, but we see in the uh, sacrificial system that was set up, all those types and shadows, uh, they foretold of this very hour when our Lord Jesus was going to suffer for his people. You could also remember that our Lord told his disciples while he was with them that this was going to take place. In the book of Luke, chapter 24, as he's explaining some things there on the road to Emmaus, he says, Then said he unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself, So the Lord there had the Old Testament passages to show that these things were going to take place unto him. And then again, a little bit later in the same chapter, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So we should not be surprised then at reading some of the things that we will be reading in Psalm 22. Now our text, as we mentioned, is verse 3, and it encompasses here more of our Lord's crying there upon the cross, which actually began, as we said there, in verse 1. And again, they're in also in verse 2. Uh, verse 1 and 2, as well as verse 3, is often called his complaints. Now, when we use the word complaints in this context, we're not meaning it in the sense of murmuring or complaining like we may do today when things don't quite go the way that we want. Uh, that's not how that the term is used when we speak of it in this sense, or in the sense in which especially some of the older writers use it. It speaks rather of an expression of, of, uh, of grief or great sorrow or we would say even lamentations. Uh, verses 1 and 2 contain his grief and obviously his lamentations and his sufferings. And he vents them or he tells them unto the Lord. So he, 
the Lord here, or Jesus here, is presenting his complaints then to his Father. And he is, as it were, the plaintiff bringing his injuries to his God as in, like, for instance, going to a court of law. And this thought then ties in very well to verse 3, where he says, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. So he's saying basically something like this. Here are my complaints. Why am I deserted? Why art thou so far from hearing me? You hear not. I speak, but you don't hear. You're not answering. You stand in silence in the face of all of my trials and all of my sufferings. You see, God here, Jesus then is giving the Lord, his Father, these complaints or these things that he's laying out to him. So he's giving him his case. And he said before. But at this point, though, God's not hearing him. And this is his complaint. You're not listening. You're not hearing in my great sufferings. But notice what he says, though, in verse 3. In the midst of that, he says this. But thou art holy, O thou that habitest the praises of Israel. What I want us to notice, first of all, is the reason for this statement. But thou art holy. Why would he say that? Why would he say that at this time, I guess, if I can put it that way? Well, the reason for this statement is that our Lord feels, and rightfully so, that he's been deserted. That he's been forsaken by God. God has, as it were, turned a deaf ear to him. As he is suffering all of the agonies given to him by both man and by God at this very point, his prayers, you see, go unheard. They go unanswered. There's no help to him. And he continually cries out. Remember we discussed that last time in verse 2. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime. And then he goes on to say, and in the night season. In other words, I'm continually doing this. this these are the petitions that are upon my lips and you're not hearing. But then our Lord says, though, but you're righteous. Thou art holy. That in the midst of his sufferings, great sufferings, in the midst of him being forsaken, he still cries out and says, Thou art holy. Even though the wrath of God itself is bearing down upon him because of our sins being laid to him, he still acknowledges here that God is holy. Someone has said about this, he says, However ill things may look, there is no ill in thee, O God. And that was the sentiments here of our Lord Jesus. And in this, I think we can see something of the confidence and the trust and all of that in God that our Lord Jesus here has in him. No matter what he's enduring, no matter what he's going through from man as well as from God, Jesus perceives here there is no unrighteousness with God in what he's doing. In causing Jesus to suffer on behalf of his people, Jesus here is saying God is doing no wrong. He's doing no wrong in deserting me. He's not doing wrong by not hearing me. 
After all, I'm accounted as a sinner. I am in the sinner's stead at this very moment. You see, if God punishes His Son, He's no doer of wrong in this. He's not made a mistake. He's not exacting something that Jesus, as our sins are laid upon Him, doesn't deserve. He does. And you know why? That this is okay? We can put it that way. It's because God is holy. He's no doer or wrong. It's not even a matter of, of us deciding this or not. It's just a fact. God never does any wrong. He's perfect. He is the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 99 and verse 3 says, Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Again, Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And that would also include the Lord's work there upon the cross as God is pouring out his wrath and indignation and displeasure upon his son. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. And then again Psalm 97 verse 2. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. You see God can do nothing but that which is holy. So have we ever really considered that as we think about Jesus hanging upon the cross and dying for our sins, that that was a holy thing? That it was a righteous thing to do? God was holy in doing it. You see, He's the Holy One of Israel whose right hand, the Scripture tells us, is full of righteousness. And Jesus Christ here affirms that. He acknowledges here. He says in the midst of His great sufferings and His great agonies that thou art holy. You remember in John 17 when He was praying His prayer and because He's getting ready to go to the cross in a few hours. He says this in John 17 verse 11. And now I am no more in the world but these are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father. Now remember, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane there. This is where he was, you remember it says that he was uh, sorrowful even unto death. Very heavy. And yet he can still call his Father here holy. Why is that? Because he is. The punishment and the death of Jesus Christ is God. In fact, this is God's declaration of His righteousness in forgiving sins. You see, God can rightfully and wholly and righteously forgive sins because He's punished His Son on the cross. Romans 3 tells us this. Whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation that is, somebody who would satisfy God 
a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, you, if you read commentaries or you read some of this modern stuff that's out there today or even on the radio, you'll hear such statements that God was not righteous in punishing an innocent person. In other words, it's wrong for God to take someone innocent like Christ and lay our sins upon Him and punish Him. That's just not right. Well, the one who's being punished here acknowledges it's right. The one who is suffering at the hands of His Father admits here and acknowledges that God is holy. So here is our Lord Jesus taking there on the cross, taking our sins, taking our guilt, and paying the ransom for our redemption. You see, God's law has been broken. And if God's going to forgive sins, then that law has to be restored. That law has to be propitiated. That law has to be satisfied. There has to be a payment that's given. There has to be that propitiation, as we talked about, for sin. And this was all agreed upon. Jesus agreed to come and to do this. The Father agreed to punish His Son. In fact, we read, what was it, last week, Isaiah 53 and verse 10. It pleased Him to put Him to grief. And Jesus here knows that God is holy in punishing Him for as a sacrifice for sin. All that God puts upon Him, yet He knows that God is holy. See, Jesus here doesn't perceive any wrong in any of this, does He? He doesn't impute wrong to God for this very thing. Now, how unlike man, when we feel sometimes that we've been shorted by God or things don't go the way that we think we ought, they ought to go, then, you know, we blame God. It's God's fault. God's not right. God's not just. God's not holy. You see, we, we question His righteousness when things don't go our way or when we're suffering affliction, and so forth. But not our Lord. You see, He knows better than it. <coughs> Notice something else. He continues and says this, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. And that's kind of a difficult statement in the midst of all this. He says, Thou art holy, and then he goes on to so say, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. You're holy, and you are the one that inhabitest, or where the praises of Israel dwell. That's what the word inhabit means there. Well, we might see this here, that this is the reason that the people of God praise him. Or ought to praise him. Let me put it this way. This is the reason why God's people ought to praise God. And that is because He's holy. Now we've gotten away from that, I think. At least the modern church seems to have. They, we've gotten away from realizing something of the holiness of God. And because He is that holy one, somehow we fail to give Him the praise and the honor and the glory that He deserves and ought to have. 
You see, he inhabits the praises of Israel. Why is that? Because he's holy. And that's what the Lord's saying here. He's, he's laying this again to God. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11 says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Again, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. When you came here today, was that something that was in your thoughts? You're coming to worship the holy God. A God who is unlike any other God and that He is holy. Now you... you you look at the gods of the Old Testament or the gods of the New Testament. You look at the gods that you know the, the Romans dreamed up and the Greeks dreamed up and or the other peoples and nations of this land. They're not holy gods. Some of them promote wickedness and ungodliness. They're portrayed as adulterers and fornicators. They're not holy, but our God is. There is nothing, absolutely nothing about him that is unholy. Remember we said a little while ago, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all of his works. Nothing in him is unholy. And he deserves the praises of his people. So when we come here, that ought to be in our thinking. This is why there's not much fear of God nowadays. They don't see God as holy. Second Chronicles again, 20, verse 21. And when he had consulted the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness. Know that. And that should praise the beauty of holiness. This is why he appointed singers, that they were just to stand and to sing regarding the because of the holiness of God. And when they had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. This is uh, Jehoshaphat as he was going to go fight a battle. And he wants to make sure that his people are on God's side. And I'm sure he was hoping God was on their side. And so he appoints singers to praise him in his, in his holiness, but also for his mercy. We see. Psalm 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. Rejoice in the Lord, Psalm 92, verse 12. Ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. Seems like something that we ought to be thinking about, don't you think? Notice again, those two verses, it speaks there of the remembrance of, 
of his holiness. This is something that we have to keep in mind. And our Lord here then boasts himself that God is holy and that he is to be praised. You know, that would probably be the last thing on our minds, would it? As we're hanging on the cross suffering? You think that would be something we would come to think, oh, God is holy. Let me praise Him for that. How about in the midst of our trials and tribulations and disappointments? Do we think God is holy? Do, are we ready to praise Him for His holiness, for all that He's doing to us at that point? Kind of hard to think that way, isn't it? Now, these words also here in verse 23, or I don't know why I keep saying 23, in verse 3 of chapter 22, can also be seen as a way of an argument to God by our Lord Jesus. Not only is he bringing his complaints, again, in a holy sense, but he's also laying out reasons here as to why God should answer him. You see what I'm saying here? These are the, the things he puts forth, like in a court of law here. He's putting these things forth for the judge to render a favorable decision towards him. Look, God, you are holy. You inhabit the praises of Israel. You're the very reason as to why your people ought to praise you. And he says that as an argument to be heard. In other words, because this is so, because you are holy, you do no wrong. There's only righteousness in all of your acts and all that you're doing. Then hear me. Or why would you not hear me if this be the case? Another person commenting on this particular aspect, he said this. He says, we may not question the holiness of God, but we may agree argue from it and use it as a plea in our petitions. I think he's got that right. So when we suffer, we can acknowledge that God is holy and use that as a reason to get us out of the trouble. That doesn't mean he will, but I'm saying those are arguments that we can, you know, as one of the prophets tells us, take us words before God. Now, that seems to be a legit understanding of this, I think, because of the next verse. And we'll get into that next time. But the idea here is that I think we can use these kind of things when we have trying times. And agonies and trials and adversities are upon us. Well, let me make some rather, just two quick applications to this. And then we'll stop this morning. Enough to think about already. Let's see here. First of all, no matter what our trials, no matter what our sorrows are, let not unbelief reign, that is, have its way, which would tell us how unholy and how unfair God is. That would be the first thing sometimes that would pop in our minds. Unbelief would kind of swell up and say, God's not right here. Something's wrong. 
with God if I'm going through all these trials? Why is he doing this? Now again, it's okay to ask things like that in a reverent way because that's what our Lord's doing here. But our Lord here never imputes wrong to God in doing this. And that's the point. So again, we can say things like this. But there needs to be the right attitude or feeling, whatever you want to call it, behind those words. We're just going to add sin on top of sin at times when we do that. You see, faith always justifies God. Faith will always say, we know what God's doing is right. I may not understand how it's all going to work out. I don't know how Romans 8, 28, I guess, or 29, I forget now, all things work together for good. I may not have all that down and how the ins and the outs of that's going to take place, but I know God is going to do it because He's righteous and holy. And He is a fair God if we want to look at it. That Use that term, which is okay because it is a right term. God is fair. He is righteous. But faith will always justify God. It will never look to God and say, you're wrong in this. The second thing we can note from this is that we should acknowledge at all times that God is holy. We should acknowledge all of the time that God... We should come here ready to acknowledge that God is holy. We should acknowledge God that He is holy when everything is going well. When the lines drop in nice times, as I'm paraphrasing David in one of his psalms. That there are some good days that we have with God. Good seasons in which everything seems to be going well. I have my health. I have my family. I have my job. I got getting bills paid for. We should bless God's holiness in such times as those. And we should also bless God for His holiness when things aren't going so well. When there are times of adversities and trials and situations which doesn't look like there's an out at all. We should praise God for His holiness. You know why? And all of this, the why of all this, because if we can't acknowledge or won't acknowledge God as holy in the good times, we will not acknowledge Him when things get rough. Do you understand that? When, if we cannot acknowledge God when all is well, we won't acknowledge Him when things get tough and difficult. Because usually then we're turned inward and all we think about is me. Why me? Woe me? And such as that. But here we see the great example of our Lord. Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. This is the worst of his times. Our Lord Jesus never had a day like this, as we would say. This was the time of his greatest suffering the abandonment of his Father for our sins upon him. Well, next time, Lord willing, we'll take up verse 4 and see how all this ties in in this passage with what we've seen before and the Lord's thoughts and all of this.
So we'll break for now and we'll come back here in a little bit for the next service. So may God bless us.